Welcome back to Cookies for Breakfast. My name is Danny Lebrecht, and I am excited to share this episode with you. We recorded it back in February of 2023, just before Kids Screen. This is a conversation with David Kleeman. He is a forward thinker in the world of immersive media. Is that fair to say? He does a lot of different stuff, stuff that I don't completely understand, but we're going to get into it in this conversation. And I really want you to stick around and listen to the very end when we hear a little bit more about his origin story. Those of you in the world of children's media and where play and learning intersect know who David Kleeman is. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Cookies for Breakfast. My name is Danny Lebrecht. I kind of want to do a little bit of a history lesson with today's uh, conversation. Uh, so let's go Let's go way on back. Let's go um, pre-screen, pre-TV. I've been thinking a lot about what, what were the first kids shows? The And when I think of kids shows, live action hosted by an adult caregiver, providing a little bit of backup to the um, parents and caregivers on the, the other side of the device, whatever that device might be. And this this is arguably one of the first kids show hosts. I'm so, I'm so curious what um, my guests will have to say about that. But I found 1920s, 21, Uncle Whip, originally played by uh, Mr. Chris Graham, uh, Philadelphia's radio station, WIP, very common practice later on in early kids TV of naming the local kids show host after the call letters. And the whole idea was here's this kind caregiver coming in, telling bedtime stories, um, singing songs, and establishing that type of a tradition, but also having sponsorships coming in at the begin, the middle, and the end. And finding that balance of, well, am I here to be with you or am I selling you stuff? And if I want to be with you, I have to sell stuff. And, and, and that complex balance, jump ahead a couple of decades and this neat new thing, the TV is coming out and people are starting to experiment with it. People like um, Bert Tilstrom, Kukla Fran and Ollie, one of the first kids show hosts, I think, on, on television that I've been able to find. But those traditions get carried over. Um, and I think a lot about how much of that is purposeful. No, we have to do it this way. And how much of it is just a tradition. And do we find a new way? Um, and now we're in this amazing place where we have these flat screens and we've been looking at, at them and interacting through them. But it feels like another big transition is coming where it's going to be immersive, where we're, we're in it in one way or another. And there's lots of different ideas of what that might look like. But augmented reality, layers of, of information in, in our um, in-person spaces, metaverse stuff, that's the term that, that a lot of people have been talking about lately. We put different names on different things throughout time. But what is, what is that going to be like? And why am I one of those people that are like, ah, the horseless carriage, ah, what are we doing? How is it going to run? It's going to crash. I would like to be reassured because I, I feel a deep responsibility as a caregiver on the other side of the screen to not just tell kids what to think and, and, and tell parents what to think. I, I don't like that as a parent and a caregiver, but I've always loved the perspective and education of, no, I'm here to encourage you to think. I want you to think critically and ask questions and figure out how to use the tool. It's okay if you want to use the stick and play with the stick. You can do anything with a stick. You can build with it. You can create with it. You make the choices. And yeah, you might get hurt, but you learn from the mistakes. I'm here to guide you. I won't be a helicopter, but I can buzz in and out as a hummingbird and, and do some guidance. Like I like that approach. And I know that tools are gonna keep evolving. 
we have to we have to be part of that. We have to go in where our our kids are, where our kids are living. We have to be part of that. I know that's really important, but it still scares me. <laughs> so I, uh, as you know, I took two years off to research and to talk with people who know a lot more than me. That's what cookies for breakfast is. And the person that knows a lot more than me today uh, is someone that I uh, started to learn about back in 2013. I had been in children's media as a local kids show host back in Chicago at that point. And I was feeling overwhelmed by my students' first and secondary experiences with gun violence in, in Chicago. And I wanted to know how I could help them best, not only in person through play and processing um, through play, but also through the screens that we were just starting to use. And Fred Rogers felt like the person to study. And, and I found myself at the Fred Rogers Center and I was asking questions and everyone kept bringing up this person's name. He's a strategist, he's an analyst, he's a connector, a speaker and an author around children's media, play and learning in the physical and digital spaces and dun 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 the universe or the metaverse and the universe. David Clayman, that was a long introduction, but I, I'm excited to be with you. Thanks for being here. That's a very long introduction that that, that mostly emphasizes that I'm I'm very old. Um, and if you hang around long enough, you get to see a lot of cool stuff. And and when you're in this field from three channels of television to the metaverse, I gotta count that as a win. I'm I'm constantly learning, constantly learning from people like you, constantly just looking for the the next real thing, not the next big thing, the next real thing. Oh, I like that. The next real thing. Well, let's talk about real because that that's that's an interesting word nowadays. Words have different meanings. What is what is real? We were just before we started recording, we were talking about um, the featured art behind you, uh, the, uh, a style of art that you've been collecting from. Um, I want I want to be appropriate in, in the way that I describe the region. How did you say it? Aboriginal Australian Aboriginal uh, art. Much of much of it is is dot painting, is telling stories that exist in time and space. Through, you know, it's funny. You keep wanting to refer to Western styles like pointillist or expressionist, and it doesn't really apply. It 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 is a storytelling tradition that goes way way back. It's all thematic, isn't it? The storytelling traditions that go way, way back. What, what does it mean to tell stories as, as human beings? But I, I brought that up because that triggered a memory of um, dream time, which is a term uh, or a philosophy or a way of thinking from, from that, that area of there is balance in our perceived reality, in our waking states, and in our subconscious, in our dream states, and one feeds the other, and it's this constant um, balance and dance and 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 I might not be getting it um, exactly right, but I I applied that idea of dream time to what I came up with in um, programs like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and um, addressing something in reality, going into make-believe to process it, not necessarily come up with answers, but just process it and be with it and then coming back to reality and that that constant back and forth. And, and that word, what is real, there's more to it. It's not just the things you can touch and feel and see. It's it's a there's the deeper side of it too, and I think that's a hard concept, like for us adults even to think about. So when I think about young children who are growing up in this this world and the communication tools that we have now, figuring out the difference between what's real, what's pretend, um, who's my friend, who isn't my friend. What do you think about in in? That's a that's a very big question. When it goes, 
<laughs> it's a big open, it's a big old open question. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but um, yeah, let's talk about that. When when I say real, I I think at one level I just mean not pursuing the latest shiny thing that is going to you know maybe get me some quick profit maybe get me some quick audiences quick uh quick likes but that is going to stick around a while um that that is going to have a an influence on kids lives you were talking about being a local kids show host in in chicago i grew up in minneapolis where our local kids show host was uh, casey jones and it's you know same thing the, the sold milk at at uh you know pitched milk during the breaks, at least it was milk. It was, you know, nothing, nothing more harmful. Uh, drank his milk with lunch. It was lunch with Casey. Um, and that stays with me. I remember sitting down, uh, you know, when I, I would have been home from school. So it was kindergarten and before sitting down and, and watching lunch with Casey and, and the storytelling that went on in that. And recently I discovered there's a, a Lunch with Casey Facebook page because there are a lot of other kids who grew up with that same thing and want to reconnect with with those times. Um, you know, when, every time we come up with something new, we come up with with terms that that we think are unique to describe it. So you were talking about immersive and the other one is interactive. To my mind, the best children's media has always been immersive and interactive. It may not be physically interactive, or it may. I mean, for whatever you think about Barney, it got kids up and dancing. Immersive means I'm I'm in the moment. I am into this story. I am thinking about things that I can do with this story after. I think, you know, I, I, I always attribute it to Joan Gans Cooney, the creator of Sesame Street, a quote that I'm not sure if it she ever actually said, but I'm, I'm, it's my story and I'm sticking with it, which is that uh, television is the one appliance that's more valuable after it's turned off. Um, and her, the feeling was we want to leave kids with a song to sing, a, you know, something new to tell their friends about, uh, something to rehearse in their minds, something, something that they feel confident that they've learned today, um, feel good about having having learned today. And I think that's that's still true. The the best children's media is stuff that leaves us with something after we move away from the screen that we that we can do or think or play. Uh, you know, so so real to me is all about um positive influence on on the life of the child and and um something that that has a longer shelf life than the newest flashy technology. Right. That, ah, there, well, there's another word, influence, right? Like influencers and, and kid influencers and, and the, you know, you can't control the actions of others, but you can influence them with your own, with your own behavior, your own action. Um, I love what you were talking about with the shiny and new, because we, we just celebrated our 15th year anniversary from our first show that we put up first episode that we put up on on youtube back in 2008 and we had researched it for five years before getting to that point and early on i remember going out and having i guess it was a learned behavior from from what i had read and, and saw in movies of going to networks and different local stations and saying will you let me do this will you give me permission to do my show that i want to do um but then we transitioned in this into this great world where you don't have to ask for permission. There aren't as many gate holders. Create, create, make something, put it out there, and offer it. Um, 
but the shiny and new, uh, I, I talk about the template that I have for an award-winning cartoon show, which is a paper plate, you know, big round head, toddler proportions, big eyes, high-pitched voices, like none, none of that stuff's new. It goes all the way back to Winky Dink and you, you know, like it's, it's been around, um, but it does, it seems to get in faster. Uh, but in our first episode, I said, okay, you, now turn off the screen. And I remember showing that clip when I was trying to pitch the show and I would have so many gatekeepers say, well, no, what do you do? You want them to stay, make it shorter, make it faster, make it flashier, raise your voice up, be funny. Why are you so serious? Why are you talking about so just the little kids, just flashy, flashy, hold their attention. That's engagement. And, and that definition of engagement seems so different than no, I want you to think for yourself, go outside, like, like have a, a real relationship through the screen. That's a deeper type of engagement, but it's, it still feels like a tough um, sell. And we're, we're still in the process of migrating from push media to pull media from I've got to put together a schedule and don't tell the kids to turn off the TV because the next show is coming up and the next commercial is coming up. And you know, I, I've got to create flow through the schedule so they so they never turn it off to pull media, which is what do I need right now? I at Dubbit, we've talked for a while about something that we call emotional scheduling. And and what we find through our just as a quick step back, Dubbit is the company that I work for is a combination of a, a game studio. We've been a game studio since 1999 and are now a metaverse studio because most of our building is on platforms like Roblox, but also a really rich research and strategy consultancy. So a, you know, a good chunk of our team is devoted to regular research with kids in their homes, in labs, online. And what we find through mostly the online research is kids make surprisingly thoughtful decisions constantly throughout the day about what they need in the moment. And a lot of it is tied to things like, what have I been doing? What am I about to be doing? Where am I? Who am I with? How long do I have is a big one. I don't want to get frustrated by getting into something that I'm going to have to abandon. And so, and, and so many of those are proxies for their emotional state. Time of day is a big one. Am I winding up? Am I winding down? And it's really hard to fulfill those emotional states in a push media environment where you have three channels, you know, as I said, three channels of television and they're competing directly with each other to get you not to change the channel to the other. It is much easier to fulfill that in a pull media state where a kid can say, I know, and, and it's not just television, it's I want to be active in a game right now. I want to have somebody tell me a story right now. I want to, you know, I've, I've only got 10 minutes. Give me something that I can um, enjoy quickly. Give me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wind down at night. Give me, uh, give me something calming. Um, that's much easier to do in a pull situation than a, than a push situation. I've been thinking about, a lot about um, choice and, and going back, this this will relate to everything that you just said, um, but like that those are to me I hear 
give the child what they deserve. Give them the the choice, a, a safe, like when you build a, a preschool classroom, you create this safe envi environment with a lot of open-ended materials and just open spaces. And the child drives the discovery and you're there to back them up as the caregiver, but you're creating this, this safe, engaging environment without dictating too much. Oh, this is how we play. This is how we draw. This is, you know, uh, that choice seems really important. And this, this is the horseless carriage side of me. When I think about, um, young kids not having as much choice. Um, I know that you and I both, uh, have, have a, a deep affection for, uh, Fred Rogers. And I know in the early mid sixties, he was talking a lot about, we are conditioning our our younger children to become consumers. We're rushing them to grow up to buy, 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 buy. So, you know, sell stuff to them. And it feels to me like we have gone to a point where in many ways with young kids, they have become the thing that we're selling. They become the brand, um, you know, the, the, the young kid influencer. And, and I get a lot of pushback on this because I think a lot of people think that I'm saying kids shouldn't get to be online and make their own stuff. And no, no, no. I love that. I love that part. And I understand that parents of kid influencers love them very much. And this is an opportunity for them to monetize and, and pay for school and all that good stuff. That's that's separate. But what, what I'm thinking about is with very young kids, babies, even two-year-olds being conditioned to become a brand, the face of a product to sell stuff. Like that is a perfectly legitimate path right now. I don't know if it's legitimate or not, but it it happens. I know it sounds so judgy, but but it seems like it's about choice. Is a child that young, do they really have the choice, the wherewithal to understand what <laughs> that their their choices are being limited in, in how they present, what they do, how they play, the monetization of a child at play. Um, and that's very specific to kid influencers, but it, and from state to state, you know, regulations change and everything, but you know, Coogan's law doesn't apply to any of that stuff. It, it, I'm kind of getting off off path, but with with choice, it seems like it's really important. Like, how how do you control something that's so huge? You know, going back to influence, you can't control the actions of others, but can you use your own influence to encourage kids to think critically when they're in the space from a young age, and encourage parents too? Because there's going to be a lot of people going, "No, this is a great opportunity for you, definitely," and yeah, I'll get my piece of it too, and. I'm getting preachy. I apologize, but what do you, what do you, what do you think about those sort of um, things with kid influencers, but choice in general? I guess below a certain age, it's quite obvious that it's the parents' choice and not not the children's choice. And and I, yeah, I think you can see through very quickly which kids are naturally engaged in play and being videotaped while they do it, and which kids are being pushed to act in a certain way. For a, a long time, I didn't understand a lot of the early uh, you know, influencer genres at all. I, I didn't understand unboxing. And then I started to think about it in terms of the things that that we like to watch. I, first, first on, on the subject of choice, there's no reason why kids should not have the same level of choice that we want. When I come home, when I you know finish work for the day, who comes home these days? <laughs> we are home. Uh, when when I finish work for the day, sometimes I want to watch a documentary. Sometimes I want to watch sports. Sometimes I want to uh, watch a, want to watch a comedy. Sometimes I want to play a game, and I expect all that to be there for me. And yet, for kids, I think we still have this very narrow notion of of what 
what they ought to be uh, given, what they ought to be offered. That that uh, I've always admired the BBC in in the UK for having this idea that that kids deserve all the genres that adults love. That they do children's documentary, they do children's drama, they do you know serious drama, they do silly stuff they do um you know game shows they they do news they've been doing news for over 50 years with news around they understand that kids deserve the same degree of choice so but to go to go back to to not understanding the genres if we look at them in terms of what we as adults often turn to unboxing is very similar to the game, the you know, the evening, what my UK colleagues call the shiny floor shows, the dancing, the um, cooking, the you know all all of those things, um, because we know what we know it's going to be dancing, we know it's going to be cooking, but we don't know what are they going to make tonight, who's going to stand out, who's going to fall short. A kid knows that it's Kinder eggs but they don't know what's in this kinder egg. So there's that same kind of anticipation that we feel. And, and, and it's not, you can tell when you look at them, which ones are there to sell a product and which ones are there to create that kind of feeling of being at the best birthday party ever. And it's, it may not be your birthday party, but you get to watch all these cool things being, being unwrapped and, in talking to kids, they they find gratification in that. They don't need to be getting the stuff in order to to enjoy the the watching of it. So if, if we, it's funny, I, I I contradict myself a lot. I think because I think we need to look at things through kids' eyes, um, and understand what's not made for us and what we don't understand because it's not made for us and because it's made for a particular developmental age and stage or a particular you know child culture or attitude. And at the same time, look at it through what are the parallels in our lives that we we like and we we expect and we um, uh, look forward to, and and how do we give kids those same gratifications? Yes, and I think and I think you're saying this, but uh, but also so in our in our current season, the uh, we, we did an episode called "Brought to You by," and it's um, I, I've always hated when the pop-ups would come up or the commercials would come in and I didn't agree to have a commercial come in. Uh, and, and some of these commercials are refined so well where they don't even look like commercials. So the whole episode, I keep my, my Kingsley puppet, my little authoritarian ruler sold us out <laughs> for, um, uh, we got this sponsorship of sack of sugar and, and these commercials interrupt and we push back, but then we point out what the, the method is. In, in a pretty kid appropriate way like oh, this oh look what they're doing they're singing a jingle because you, know, you can pull someone in with a song and uh, and it's like a history it's like a, a commercial from the 50s from the 60s you know so on and it goes up to a, a kid influencer it's like, is this a commercial like what's you know um and 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 hopefully not judgy but i think going back to the word choice you said something to the effect of, well, you can tell when someone's being authentic, when someone's selling you something, or if it's just play, you're in the moment. I, but I think it's harder. I think it's it's harder to tell. Um, now, I think it's there's a lot of subtlety stuff for the things that we present to kids, but also the stuff for for us. It's It's tough to see through that. I think empowering the kids to make the choice for themselves seems very important right now. Um, a little side story. This is more geared towards adults, but we were home over the holidays back in Illinois and we were visiting the great grandparents. 
And on their device, on their big screen, they, um, after the, you know, opening the boxes and presidents, you know, we were having our downtime. There was this holiday edition of we're going to have a game show and we're going to have these correspondents on one show on Fox and these other correspondents on another show. And it's playful and fun. And we're talking about different opinions on holiday traditions, like is Die Hard uh, a Christmas show? Light, fun, you know, oh, hey, this is funny. We can all talk about this. But what was so subtle was I saw the same techniques that we use in kids' media all the time, the looking through the screen, the using the hi kitties or hey pal or hey buddy or hello neighbor or, you know, I'm with you. I'm part of your family. I'm showing up every day and I'm with you, that language. And then the most subtle Hey, we're we're uh, we're gonna do this game show, and remember, the nation's divided. Big smile, and then moving into, and then now we're see here's the division, and remember, the nation is divided. You know that language. <laughs> is anyone else seeing, hearing this? You know, and it's pretty blatant, but but at the same time, that that age group that I think is being targeted, seniors, um, looking at patterns and everything. There's there is like. Um, the talking heads and the responsibility of those talking heads and influence and and going back to, I think it's really important to show them, whatever age group, all of us, what's being used? How is it being used to manipulate us? The technology isn't bad. It's just a tool, but who's using it? Now, how are they using it? And beyond good guys or bad guys, you know, those complex things. Well, I think that's exactly why the approach you just described of what you're doing this year is spot on, is is just the right thing to do and is incredibly necessary as the media world gets more and more complex, which is to to deconstruct it through through storytelling, to point out the uh, to to we need one of my side side gigs. I was on the board of the National Association for Media Literacy Education for several years. I, I termed out, but I still am very involved with the organization. We need to start from the earliest ages engaging around media literacy. I don't want to say just teaching media literacy because a lot of it has to be that sort of informal taking every opportunity out in the real world, at home, everywhere to um, you know to 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 point these things out. And adults need it as much as kids. The parents, I think, need to be. Uh, yeah, need media literacy education so that they can be good media mentors, as my friend Chip Donahue uh, refers to it, to their to their kids. Oh, uh, so many different thoughts just came in <laughs> rushing in as you're say, saying that. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just saying when you when you're talking about um, identifying commercial messages and and uh, separating them from content, it's only going to get tougher. Um, here, you know, as I said, Dubbit works a lot with Roblox as a platform. On Roblox, for those who don't know it, Roblox is is not a game. It is the YouTube of games. Anyone can create a game. The tools are quite simple. You can create a very simple game. The tools are quite profound. As a company, we create really complex and and challenging games and experiences and and deep experiences that uh, you can really spend a lot of time with. But anyone can do it. Uh, we we've seen games created by kids as young as six and seven. Um, there are 2,000 Lego games on the Roblox platform, none created by Lego. Now, is that a commercial? Is that fan appreciation? Is that 
these are the things that I love playing with. And so I, and, and you know, it naturally comes to me to tell stories around that. So it's going to get only more complex to, to separate out what is a commercial message and what is, uh, you know, what, what is just the, the way that uh, brands and, and content in, incorporate themselves into our storytelling and into our, into our lives. Well, I feel like, I feel like so much of it is like, is it, is it an open, is it an open-ended play-based tool? And well, here's a question for you. Like the, I I've been, I've been reading about, um, what's the term elves, the, 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 the idea, <laughs> I don't know if it's just like a futuristic thing or like, no, this is probably pretty close on the horizon. The idea of a friend showing up in these spaces that maybe isn't an actual person is still friendly and still engaging, but is also giving these subtle hints of, Oh, I see you like playing with this. You should ask mom to buy, you know, like that, that sort of stuff, the guides that can suddenly Mickey mouse will suddenly be like, and don't forget to, you know, that, that stuff. Have you, what are your thoughts on that? That kind of manipulation just drives me crazy. I, you know, I've long been an advocate that anyone who uses guilt in any direction with parents, with kids, uh, I, I can't stand. Whether that's if your child passes within the glow of a screen before the age of two, they're ruined forever, that kind of guilt, or whether it's, as you say, you know, if you, hey, kids, come, come try this, come buy this. One of the worst media experiences I ever had. I was judging a competition, and I I, I won't say the name of the the app, but it was it was a, one of these apps where you're it's it, you're kind of it, almost like a tamagotchi. You're raising a you're raising a an animal or a pet, and I played for a while and I put it aside. Um, and the next day, I had a text message. I must have opted in for text messages since I was testing this thing, saying. You haven't played with me for for a whole day. What could be more important than playing with me? And that thing immediately, you know, that entry immediately got got a zero because that kind of manipulation, that kind of 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 dishonesty with kids and trying to create a parasocial relationship where one doesn't really exist, but then use it for guilt is just is ought to be banned. Well, let's talk about. So, okay, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. So. You know, so often with with our tools for communication, there's the solution is rules and regulation. That will work, but it doesn't work. The, I think of the, I'm working on a, my next piece for um, uh, Ed Surge right now. And it's looking at that period in history where the local kids show hosts um, kind of disappeared in the early 70s because of rules and regulations, really good, really good stuff. Um, you shouldn't hold up the box and sell the thing through the screen. If you're here to be my kid's friend, you shouldn't manipulate. Um, and that helped, but it also took the legs out of a lot of really great local caregivers that were just as good as people like Fred Rogers. Um, but they, they disappeared because they couldn't, they, and I know some of those people that, you know, survived it and some that didn't, I've got a lot of mentors from that period. Um, but then there were these little you know, tricky ways to get around that and still essentially sell stuff and not so tricky ways. Like, you know, Sesame Street uh, sells stuff all the time in a very good, authentic way that's going to serve a greater purpose of serving communities around the world on and off screen. But you can still find Elmo on a bag of apples or, or, or video, you, you name it. They're on, you know, Jim Henson is, was always into, not into, but used commercialism to support the art. You know, like there's a balance there. I got a picture of my granddaughter the other day dressed head to toe in you know, Elmo slippers and sesame 
pajamas. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Again, like if there's, if there's choice, there's intention, all that stuff, but the rules and regulation thing, it, it seems to fall short. COPPA stuff, it, it didn't do a lot of my peers, myself, any, any favors. And we still saw awful things sneaking through in, in YouTube and YouTube kid. I know YouTube kids are working really hard to adjust that. And I came back in because I knew they were, um, but so instead of rule and regulation, I, I, again, I think it comes back to empowerment of the person on the receiving end of the screen. And yeah, we can model that. But what are some other ways like going, going like I know metaverse isn't really a thing yet. You talk a lot about proto metaverse and Roblox kind of being like, how do you how do we train for that? My perspective for a long time has been that regulation can rein in the most egregious violators. But regulation has never created quality. You cannot mandate quality. Congress cannot step in and say, you must make better kids media. They can step in and say, you have to devote a certain amount of time to education. Although even that, you know, when you claim the Flintstones teaches you about the future, as, as one of the people at the very beginning of the Children's Television Act tried to do, and um, you know that it's it's a it's a failed system um so they they can mandate a certain amount of devo time devoted to certain things australia has long had local content requirements or the amount of children's drama you have to do each year but you have to create an incentive to make it good and you have to empower the people like you who are working very hard to make high quality children's media to um to be able to do what they what they want to do to have a financial underpinning that allows you to 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 make the kind of programs that you want to make and and you know i'll be honest we have yet to come up with a perfect or completely fair financial model for children's media um, i think we're in a fascinating period right now where for years parents have said i don't want my kids to see commercials i don't you know i i don't want them watching commercials and then you look at the bottom line of how many subscriptions you've signed up for once you get past your Netflix and your Amazon and your Apple and your, you know, all those things. And you say, wait a minute, I'm spending a lot more money than, than I thought I was. Maybe a few commercials aren't such a bad thing if they're going to, you know, if I don't have to pay by the month for it. So we're in a real world experiment around, around that right now, but there just has never been an ethical and sustainable model for funding children's media. The app stores just don't work for for creators, um, or or necessarily for parents who you know keep having to come back and and buy new updates or buy new packages or you know things like that. I will say it's one of the things that I that I do admire about Roblox, which is that you can play for free all you want. You can choose to spend Robux if you want, and it and God knows kids spend huge amounts of robux robux they they it is the main thing they spend their pocket money on it's the main thing they ask for for holidays now but you can also have a really good time playing without spending a thing my character in rope in roblox still has the same outfit i you know that they give you when you when you enter the game because i don't want to spend money inside inside the i don't feel like spending money on virtual things and i can have a great time um Although as an old person, I spend most of my time bumping into walls, but that's that, that's that's part of learning. Um, so so until we come up with a, a sustainable and ethical solution, and I'm I'm encouraged by some of the regulation 
that I'm seeing emerge now, like the age-appropriate design code from the UK, that starts from the idea of we know these things about child development. We know these things about what children can understand and can't understand, about what is, is fair when dealing with them, and build the regulation from that. Here are the things that you may and must not do at particular ages in order to be fair to children, in order to empower children, in order to um, not take advantage of their developmental growth. Mm -hmm. So going back to that article that I'm working on for Ed Surge, I think I think that so many of us on the creation side, of adults anyway, on the creation side, I know kids are way more interested in doing it themselves, making their own stuff. And I think that's beautiful and wonderful. But for those of us that are still carrying on traditions of the kids show host and the kids show and live action stuff, I think in the way that um, the local kids show hosts kind of got pushed out of the scene, I think we're coming back now. I think there's this resurgence of, oh no, actually this is very attractive from a, a business perspective too. This is unusual now, a real authentic caregiver connecting through the screen, whether it's a uh, a real life teacher or um uh, even a character you know even 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 um you know actors like the 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 three uh, generations of blues clues you know they're themselves you know S S steve josh they they they're themselves but they're also a character they're kid like you know the the camera's angled down big eyes you know that's they're playing a part a little bit there's the the character there's the clowns pinky living in the 50s to blippy nowadays you know like um i don't see much difference between those those guys and then there's just people that are attempting to be themselves authentic selves and i think that the people attempting to be their authentic selves i think they're going to really help in this transition if the focus is um away from if I'm going to be successful, I have to have a billion subscribers and all these followers and this insane, I shouldn't use that word, but this really, really big social media presence to be deemed successful. Numbers, numbers, that's where your worth is instead of content. I think if we all have our little niches and our, our, our communities and we're really listening to our communities and reflecting what's going on and empowering the kids on the other side, I think if we break it up, I think it's the lo quote, local slash global kids show host that's going to um, really help with that educational side of of God, or at least I hope so. That's that's what I'm thinking a lot about. And I, I think we're able now with, you know, I, I talked before about the difference between push and pull. That's one of the factors, uh, more global world. Um, shelf space, just, just the ability for a, a channel to have essentially a, a video on demand channel to have essentially unlimited shelf space. At some point, you have to acknowledge that something that is deeply meaningful to a smaller audience can be as important as something that is, eh, it's okay to a, a massive audience. I, Years ago, I was driving in Chicago, actually, and I heard a song pop up on Broadway radio that I had never heard before that has stayed with me. And I've done whole talks around it. And that the song is from a show called Title of Show. Uh, very, very meta. Uh, not not big M meta, little M. Um, and it's about the creation of a musical. And they face a moment in the musical where they have to decide whether to stay true to their values or sell out essentially and the song that that goes with this is i'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing 
I love that that concept. And I, I think we now have space in the media world to be nine people's favorite thing and to have it, if that gets you to renew your subscription to a, a VOD service, if that gets you to keep coming back to a, an ad, ad supported service, because you can see, you know, and I'll, and I'll say this applies to interactive to games as well, that one of the things we saw during the pandemic was parents who had seen their kids playing Minecraft in particular, some of the other platforms as well, but Minecraft especially, and said, it's been on it for three hours, just turn off the screen. Those parents who are privileged enough to be home and have time to watch what their kids were doing with these with these platforms suddenly think wait a minute you built that you figured out how to create you know your school in minecraft you you made a you know a, a, a whole building you uh designed a whole little fantasy world out of your mind and you figured out how to build it all right i start to understand how important this is to you that it's not just mindless screen time a term i hate that it's something that that you you know, really challenges you and really engages you. Ooh, well, I like I like that side of it. I mean, that sure. Well, it's all about how you use the how you use the stick. I've been writing lately about a term I think I invented called the learnification of gaming, and we've all heard about the gamification of learning. That when you incorporate game principles into curriculum, into learning learning processes, learnification of gaming is kind of the flip side of that. Is is you talked before about Roblox being a platform that where anyone can create. And if it's intrinsically motivating to you to make something that you have in your mind, to build a game that you've thought of, if it's intrinsically motivating to you to make it better, to, to, you know, ask your friends to play it and then, and get their comments and say, okay, how do I improve it? And to keep doing that, that is learnification of gaming. It, it's in, you know, driven by your own desire to to make something and right now we at dubbit are hiring 17 18 19 20 year old game developers who grew up from the age of nine build or sometimes even younger building on roblox building on on some of these other platforms and they did it because they wanted to make the games that they wanted to play um and that their their friends wanted to play so now when we bring them into a professional company we get their understanding of how they and their peers want to play. And they get from our longtime game developers, how do you work with a client? How do you work to a deadline? How do you act as part of a of a team? It's a win-win situation for everyone. I, I recommend a wonderful book called App Kid by um a guy named Michael Sayman, Michael, S-A-Y-M-A-N. Michael was the youngest person ever hired by Facebook because he'd been creating games uh, from the time he was about 10 years old. And he now has his own company. He's he, He's been through all the big companies. He worked for Twitter. He worked for Facebook. He worked for uh, some of the others. And, and now he's building his own stuff. But in this book, he writes about this idea that that he was making games because he couldn't not make games. He he loved so much the process of of building and the result, uh, you know, seeing the result and the iterative thinking that he just couldn't stop himself from doing it. Wow. Uh, have you seen um, content houses in places, LA, New York, where kid influencers 
aren't new, like they're they're now in high school and they're going to college. And instead of going to college or into a workspace where they're driving, you know, it's you have a huge following on whatever platform. Um, as a manager, I will give you 50% of what you're making. Isn't that a great deal? And you get to live in this beautiful mansion with all these other beautiful people. It's going to be great. You know, you know, it'll be really fun. And you make whatever is trending on your phone and uh, you know, focus in on what's the most popular stuff and, and you'll get paid that way. And uh, I think it was Vice News that did a mini documentary of <laughs> these ki- kids acknowledging, yeah, I know what I'm doing, but you know, this is going to, I'm making money and and that's the goal in life, isn't it? And I thought, oh, this is so sad. You're so close to it. You're so like, there's nothing wrong with using that tool, but are you going back to choice? Are you the one making the choice? Are you in an environment where you're being encouraged to go even further and think deeper and, and learn from mentors? And so it's like you, what you described sounds like the op, I don't know, it's not fair to just go opposite, but it sounds different. It's taken away, that takes away the intrinsic, that takes away the intrinsic motivation of, of building. And, and part of the intrinsic motivation can be I, I do have a fan base or I'm making money, you know, that, that, that can be part of your motivation, but when you're doing it for somebody else and when you're doing it on a schedule and when, when they're telling you, you know, here's what's hot today. So do this, um, then, then it flips it and becomes extrinsic motivation and it becomes doing it for somebody else, not for yourself. Um, I think about, I've been working on, on a story for Treehouse actually, um, Country Mouse, City Mouse. And it's the idea of really, they're not that different. Uh, Country Mouse doesn't have a lot of options for Wi-Fi and engagement, and there's limited resources in that area. And City Mouse, in some areas of the city, doesn't have access to Wi-Fi and the different tools, and maybe through school, maybe through the library. You know, same thing on those two polar opposite ends. I keep talking opposites. I think that's a learned behavior. I want to get past that. Anyway, the um, the idea of there's this this wave of, oh, well, here's the future. This is how kids are engaging. This is how kids are engaging. But not all kids have access to that when we think of of privilege, you know, on, on social, economic, you know, that can mean different things in different areas. Um, but I've noticed with a lot of kids that I work with, it's more today is like 20 years ago based upon the tools that they have access to like phones are much more accessible now so engagement through youtube passive stuff is exciting and they're making their own videos but they haven't come close to really getting too deep into um roblox stuff or having the money at least to to pay for the extras and and all that stuff um so i guess i guess i'm bringing that up on to talk about like the accessibility of it and, and, um, and, ex- you know, exclusive club sort of stuff. Um, is that a regulation thing? Like how do we make sure that these tools are accessible to, to all kids? Is it libraries? Is it, what is that? The only place regulation can really play a, a role in equity and, and accessibility is ensuring that there's broadband uh, equitably distributed that, that, you know, the stories of kids during the pandemic who had to go and sit in the McDonald's parking lot to do their homework uh, because that was where the, the Wi-Fi was. If we can get to a point where we have equitable distribution of, of broadband, and um, that certainly will help level the, pl- the playing field some. I mean, it doesn't account for having the equipment. It's fascinating to look, you know, I, I do a lot of global work and it's fascinating to look at places where they've just jumped over 
laptops and and they get their internet through mobile phones and they they approach it in a very different way from how we think of our mobile phones here some of the most innovative um uses of of mobile technology have come out of african countries where they're using it for financial transactions they're using it for learning at distance you know all these different things where they say okay here here are the resources that we have how do we make the best the best use of that and sometimes when you have lots of resources, when you have a surfeit of resources, you actually kind of squander them. You're not using them for the best, you know, the most important purposes because, uh, and this is one of the things that always pisses me off about those, about people who talk about the Silicon Valley parents who uh, don't let their kids have uh, have technology. That's because those Silicon Valley parents know that anytime they want their kids to have access or their kids want to have access, they can have access to the best equipment, to the fastest broadband, to the best teachers, you know, to, to all the resources to let them make best use of it. And, and it comes across as, as um, sort of deprecating, I think, to people who struggle to work with the technologies they are able to get, to get and to, uh, to use them to best effect to, for their own learning. The one thing I think that we do that the the broad children's media industry could learn from influencers is we still have a particularly in the the children's TV world very long development cycles. You know, a show comes into someone's mind and it's three years before it actually gets gets made. You got to get a green light from someone. Although, as you say, the the gatekeepers are are fewer and and more open, uh, but it it still takes a long time to get a lot of these series made. A YouTuber wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to make a cooking show. They make a cooking show by noon. They put it up. By evening, they've got the analytics that says, I'm never making a cooking show again. My, my audience doesn't like that. We need a happy medium between that. We don't want to just constantly be doing the, the first thing that comes into our mind, but we also can't be present in kids' lives in a very meaningful and timely way if we don't come up with a development cycle that allows us to respond to things. There was a wonderful series during the pandemic out of Sinking Ship Productions in Canada that was on Apple Apple TV, I think, um, that was, um, no, I, I take it back, it was you, YouTube commissioned it, that was called Lockdown. And it was from conception, the person who came up with the idea literally had it as he was out for a walk, sold it that day. It was on the air in a month, and it was all done under COVID circumstances by sending phones um, to actors and having it scripted in a way that it was it, it played out as though it was on YouTube, on TikTok, on all these different platforms that for teens are the center of their lives. So it replicated that, but it allowed them to get a story told about the pandemic that also really touched on some very important issues like racism, like um, you know families whose livelihoods were interrupted by by the pandemic, um, vulnerability and 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 uh, things like that. It was one of the deepest series out there, but it was created in a month. It reflected the. I, th I think that's. We think about that all the time in our in our home studio home. Uh, the how do you respectfully reflect and respond to this moment? That like really truly not just pretending to look through the screen and listen, but how do you actually engage and hear what's going on and listen? You read the letters and have the FaceTimes and do the live stream. We were doing live streams way before. Uh, 
COVID, it, like I think one of my first letters to you was about, I think I, I think I have an idea on how to literally talk through the screen. You're like, well, good luck. If you crack that, let me know. That's a good um well, it's one of the things you've done you've done well, which is to use multiple forms. So that you, you know, there's what you do for sensical that's more like a regular series. And then there are there are things that you do that are more timely and more um, you know, sort of fill the gaps in between. Right. Well, today at one o'clock, we're starting our partnership back up with um early learn uh, Baltimore early learning um Baltimore cities and all their preschools and it's and it goes into the classrooms and, they, and we talk in real time and and it's like the old school thing where the next week they send me in projects and then we feature the projects in what we're doing and it's but but we don't necessarily know where it's going to go it's very much holding up the puppet and saying how do you think this puppet feels today and then listening and letting them project and then the story evolves from that and that yeah I love that stuff because you go so far beyond Apple is red, sky is blue, you know, like that. Okay, great. But you know what? Maybe I want to talk about um, heavier stuff that's going on. Maybe I'm really hungry and, 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 and I'm hungry because I'm, I don't have the resources at home. And there's a moment where the teachers go, oh, we didn't, you didn't have the words to say that, but through play, you seem to be, you know, like really important things come out. Um, So that's, that's more than a show to me at that point. That's a different type of thing, which is is when I think of potential of uh, metaverse stuff, um, I don't know why I say it in that tone, but it's it's like this. This all feels like laying the groundwork for whatever. If however the engagement happens, as long as we're hanging on to these sort of things, that seems to be what's going to keep it okay. <laughs> if, if we do it right, then the metaverse will be the most powerful community creating force that we've that we've seen before that that people can come to I, I actually have an article that i'm i'm just finishing up and getting ready to to pitch out figure out where it should go about how young people are going to use these technologies to change the world how, how can a hundred million uh creators uh some for profit you know some as work and some just for fun use their virtual creations to change the the real world um and and one of the ways they're going to do that is by creating small communities in Web3, in, in the metaverse, that allow them to act quickly and to act in response to something very specific. So Greta Thunberg may create a, you know, a, a action core that uh, is able because they're able, they're all around the world, but they're able to communicate rapidly and effectively and share things that are visual and, and manipulate things as well as just messaging, um, that they may be able to have a, a global impact beyond what they would have been able to have with previous technologies. That That's the thing that makes me so hopeful, because I think so often when think people think people, what I think sometimes is metaverse as, oh, I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to go into this thing where I don't have to look at the real world because yuck, oh no, things are falling apart. But actually, no, this is the tool that we could use to have some positive impact and, and adapt. Uh, if not, you know, maybe not save, but adapt in a healthy way. Um, you know, that that sort of attitude, I think, is um, going to be helpful. Yeah, one, one part of this article is that we can't look at the metaverse as escape from a dysto- from dystopian worlds, the way Ready Player One, Snow Crash, you know, the ways, the places that the term metaverse came from did it. We've got to look at it as being the most powerful potential community building, communication building, equity building. And the key phrase, as I said before, is if we get it right, and we don't get a lot of chances to get it right. 
regulators are watching, families are watching, you know, so so we got to get it right the first time on this. And we've, we've messed it up on a lot of previous technologies by pitching it to families as being great for kids when we didn't really have a vision of how to make it great for kids, but but we just wanted them to buy the equipment or buy the service. And we'll, we'll figure it out later. And we never, you know, once you do it that way, you never do. So this was this, I, I've got to. So I, I participated in um, the the CMA um, live stream where you're talking about metaverse stuff. And I remember the language of um, this time around, you know, and I wrote to you about it and I was so concerned about my tone because I hate writing because I feel like it always falls short and I, and I sound like I'm snarky or whatever. And I don't mean to be like, this is the way I actually sound when I'm writing those notes to people. If I've ever written you a note somewhere out there and you're like, this guy, this is, it. I, it's not that I really, I'm just wanting to understand, but you know, I think of early days of social media and a lot of those um, developers saying, oh, this is going to change the world. We're going to connect. We're going to, we're in control of it. We decide this time, you know, and it's a similar type of language. It's like, well, do, how much can we control? I mean, we're always going to make mistakes and we're always going to refine. Practice makes better is the song we sing at Treehouse, not perfect, you know? Um, so I understand what you're saying, but how do we, begin to guarantee, I'm using quotation for those who are listening to this, how do we guarantee that type of thing? Um, that that makes me go, ugh, horseless carriage. Well, I mean, for me, it, it's almost every time I give a talk, I say, I'm going to let you in on the secret. The metaverse doesn't exist yet. And we have to build it the way we want to see it because it doesn't exist yet. Almost every other technology, every other, and, and this goes way back. This goes, you know, when televisions came out, they said you've got to have a television set because it's going to be so great for your kids. They're going to learn all these things. Color TV. Imagine seeing the world in color. Cable TV. Channels and channels of children's educational content. Uh, computers. Your kid has got to have a computer. Or they'll be left behind. The, you know, every time something comes out, we do the same thing of marketing it to parents as the best thing for their kids, and then kids aren't such a profitable audience. So so that's that's why I, I keep emphasizing if I talk about it in the way that I feel like it can develop in a, in a very positive way, I'm sending that audience out with that as their vision of how to build for it, with a positive vision of how to build for it. And if I can talk to enough people and if enough other people see it that way and you know uh, and and talk to talk to people, uh, about it or, or go forth with that vision we've got a fighting chance because we're at the beginning of it uh you you sound like a really good influencer <laughs> like that's a very positive i'm a hopeless optimist i i've been in this for 30 in this field for 35 years i've seen some horrible things but i've also seen some really amazing work um you know the the opportunity to be part of the international children's tv festival um, since 1988, I've been going every other year. I'm the chair of their advisory board has let me see that there are people out there who, you know, just marvelous creators all over the world who are doing the best they can with, with the resources they have. And my favorite thing is when, you know, my mouth drops and I think, who had that idea? Who, you know, who thought that was, uh, who, you know, who, that you could use the medium in that way? And and I just have to show it to other people. So. What was, so what was the moment that brought you into all this stuff? Because everyone's always said, oh, he's the guru. And I bet it must 
feel weird to have people refer to you as a guru of these things, but like, where, where did you start? Were you a little kid going, I will do this one day? Or like, what was the moment that, that kind of really pulled you in? Or were there a couple, like, can you speak to that for a little bit? I, I was, um, it goes back to high school and I was very lucky to, um, be part of a, a senior elective. My last year in high school, we, we had a chance to do some just classes outside the regular curriculum. And mine was on perspectives on American education. And as part of that, I got to student teach in my school's lower school. And I had an amazing kindergarten teacher that I was student teaching for who just inspired me that I wanted to be a preschool teacher. This was 1975. And I for college, I went to Harvard. So two things. One, in 1975, men did not want to be preschool teachers. And Harvard has no idea what to do with someone who wants to be a preschool teacher. My, my roommates were all reading their Mill and Locke, their political philosophers are doing their organic chemistry. And I'm thinking about, you know, children's reading the little engine that could. Now, to me, that's a win. But but they thought it was very strange. And Harvard wasn't quite sure what to do with me. But about a month into my time there, I heard a lecture by Jerry Lesser, who's one of the creators of Sesame Street. He'd always been at the Harvard Ed School, but um, he'd been their, their educational consultant throughout. And he was now a dean at the Ed School. And he gave a talk to a class I was taking. And literally in that hour class, I thought, no, I want to teach through television, not, not in a classroom. Now, the, the secret is 40 years later, whatever it is, there are a lot of really lucky kids that I never became a classroom teacher. My my late wife was a classroom teacher. My daughter is a classroom teacher. My other daughter te works with kids with autism. I've seen what good teachers do. I would not have been one. I do not have the patience. But I was able to move into, you know, I, I did virtually all the rest of my undergraduate education was at the Harvard Ed School, studying child development, studying children's language acquisition, studying with the people from Children's Television Workshop, now Sesame Workshop, because they had this relationship with the Harvard Ed School. Moral development, you know, all everything I could suck in about how kids um, grow and learn. I got sidetracked for a few years, but I knew I really wanted to be in children's media. I worked for PBS for five and a half years um, in their children's department, but also learning how a broadcaster works. And then got a call from a guy I'd had an informational interview with 10 years pre previously. Um, actually, I, I was moving to Chicago and I wrote to him and said, I'm moving to Chicago. We haven't talked in 10 years. We talked for 45 minutes 10 years ago. If you hear of anything, here's what I've been doing. If you hear of anything, let me know. And he called because this was pre-internet a few days later and said, I actually have the perfect job for you. And it was running a festival he had created based on the International Children's TV Festival to choose America's best kids TV. And the original director had just left. He needed a new director. It was a wonderful job. We ran the festival for a few years till we couldn't keep it going. But what we'd realized in running the festival is what people really liked was being brought together to talk about what makes good children's TV, good children's media. So we transformed it into the American Center for Children's TV and then later the American Center for Children and Media. I never went fully down the avenue of becoming a producer, becoming a broadcaster, becoming a you know, distributor, a writer, any of that. But what I always loved doing was sitting in the middle of a hub, you know, sitting at the center of a hub of education, research, child development, child health, production, distribution, digital, 
and finding the, the cool people and the interesting people and the smart people in each and connecting them and saying, oh, you need to talk to this person. And I guess that's how you become a guru is you don't you don't do it for yourself, but you do it because you see the the talent of other people and you really need to need to let them free up their talent and find the right people to collaborate with. That's it. Wow. <laughs> That's it's and that boy, that really does apply to everything. It's it's like pulling in the 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 connections and the authenticity. And it's not about me. It's about it's about you. And if you're serving others authentically, we're all gonna be better. I mean that that's let that that's I like that as a definition for metaverse, but also for life. Like that's just being a good person. And I've been so lucky to find a, a you know, when, when, when I had to close the American Center um, for a variety of reasons, I've been so lucky to find two research companies, first Play Science and, and now Dubbit, that understand the value of that, that, that you know, don't look immediately just at the ROI of, of what I do, but the idea that if you have interesting ideas and you, and now I've got this great pool of research to draw those interesting ideas and share them with the world. And if you talk about interesting things, when people have a need, they'll say, oh, those people, they're thoughtful. I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to them. So it works out in the end. I think it does work out in the end. It is, a, it's a big sandbox that we all get to play in. And uh, I'm excited for what's coming next. I still get a little bit overwhelmed from time to time when the new tools come out, but I'm I'm ready to play. I hope you play too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>